It was in December of 1952 that the city of London experienced one of the most deadly environmental hazards of all time, a disaster. Seeking to fight off the winter cold, the citizens of London did what was normal. They went ahead and burned coal. And as the smoke came from the city's chimneys, it mixed with the rising bank of natural fog, which only turned the air colder. And naturally, the colder it got, the more coal they burned, making more smoke, which lowered the temperature even more. The vicious cycle. And soon, that vicious cycle produced a fog that was so thick and dark that visibility fell in the city to one foot. Roads were littered with abandoned cars. People stumbled into buildings only to find that the fog had already crept in before them. And at the end of the first day, all of the cattle in the city's Smithfield market had already died because their lungs were filled with this black soot. And by the fourth day, several thousand people in London had lost their lives as well to this killer fog and to the sinister darkness. As I read the story of that particular disaster, I could not help but see in it something of a metaphor of of the spiritual world into which Jesus came, the one already identified by the prophet Isaiah, but to be honest, one also which is not much different than ours, a world of malevolent and deadly darkness. And this morning, I would invite you to turn with me to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. There we, we encounter words that are warm, words that are very familiar. There we begin by reading, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning, and you know who that Word is. His name is Jesus. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And we read in verse 3 that in Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. But when we read in verse 4, we find ourselves re-entering into the dark and deadly fog. He came into the world to shine in the darkness, but the darkness, we read, did not understand him. And it is with that image of darkness that was embedded in my mind that I I turn to the very next verse in verse 6 of chapter 1 in John. It says, And in that dark scenario, there came a man who was sent from God, and his name was John. (laughs) It's almost like the the first breath of wind cutting through this dark, misty fog. Uh, There, all of a sudden, out steps a man named John, sent from God, a man on a mission. And in verse 7 we read, He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through Him all men might believe. He Himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Verse 9, The true light that gives light to every man was coming. He was coming. He was coming. Jesus Christ was coming. The true light which gives light to every man was coming. Jesus into the world. Now over the last couple of weeks, I've, I've sought to introduce you to this man, this man named John. It was, it was Jesus who gave him his name as the greatest. For no one greater has been born of woman, Jesus said, than this man, John. And in the Gospel of John, we don't need his name to sense his presence. There is simply something about a man or a woman sent from God that really does require no explanation. 
Because when they come, they stand in their world with a confident and sure and steadfast gaze, and they are true. And as I've studied through the life of John the Baptist, and and as I've analyzed the forces that would produce such a person, I've wondered, what did he make of himself? What did he think about himself? I know what Jesus thought of him. He called John great. And I know what sort of environment went into the shaping of his character. It was the desert. But what did John think of himself? What did he make of himself? What sort of conclusions did he draw that allowed him to be so confident and so influential in this critical role that he plays? It's no surprise that those were exactly the questions that were raised then when we turn in John chapter 1, verse 19. If you have your Bibles, please turn there with me to that. There we read that the powers that be of the day, the leaders of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to, to ask him to identify himself. Now this is a moment of crisis, this moment in verse 19, where by his own words we would discover out of his own thoughts of himself what to make of this man, the measure of this man. And so they come and they ask the question, who in the world are you? Well, they didn't actually record that question in the Gospel of John, but, 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 but we get an idea that he's asking them, uh, John, they are asking John to tell us who you are because the way he responds in verse 19, they subject him to a series of questions and we can easily guess the first By John's answer, are you the Christ? Verse 20, he did not fail to confess, it says. He confessed freely, I am not the Christ. I really love that. There is no hemming or hawing on John's part. There are no word games or verbal tricks, just a very simple statement. I am not the Christ. This had to have been a very special moment for John. It would have been very easy for him, extremely easy for him to get caught up into the moment, to inhale the sort of popularity that had accrued to him, the excitement of the crowd, and maybe to begin to suspect that, hmm, maybe I am the Christ. It had happened to others. Power and recognition has a way of doing a job on any one of us, causing us to think that we are much more than we really are. And John could have hesitated over the possibility, but instead, and without pause, maybe even before the question could have been asked, he responds by saying, I am not the Christ. I don't want to make too much of it, but I, I love that it reads, he confessed. This is a confession, not he answered or he said or he replied. It says he confessed. This is a confession. And it doesn't get much more authentic than that. For in his confession, what he is saying is, I know who I am, but even more, I know who I am not. I am not the Christ. And I have to think that the best step to self-discovery, knowing who you are not, allows you then to become free to be who you are. Well then, the leaders say, okay, are you Elijah? Verse 21. 
Back in the book of Malachi, there had been a prophecy prophecy that before God would intervene in the affairs of this world, someone, either Elijah or someone like Elijah, would appear and announce what was going to happen. But again, John did not fall for that one either. And with simple clarity, he said, I am not. Well, if you aren't the Christ, and if you're not Elijah, then are you a prophet? After all, Moses predicted in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that a very special human being would come sometime in the future with unique gifts and power. So are you a prophet? And I love his answer in verse 21. It comes down not to a statement, but to a single word. No! Now, I call this a crisis moment, and it is. It's, it's like the shootout at the OK Corral. The questions are fired. Are you the Christ? Boom, nah, no. Are you, are you Elijah? Boom, nah, no. Are you a prophet? Boom, nah, no. Uh, it's like, like, like all the questions are fired, and the answers are firm. And at the end, in verse 21, I picture a pause as the smoke clears, and there's John standing tall and prone, and strong, in a circle of silence. And in verse 21, finally they said, Who are you? Who are you? And his his answer is profound. Look at verse 23. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. In the face of all the questions, John refused to accept a name or a title. Instead, when forced to identify himself, he went back to the lessons and meditations he had, he had experienced at the feet of his father Zechariah, his mother Elizabeth, the lessons and the meditations that had been steeled into him in the desert. And as far as I can understand it, he says, I am simply the voice of one who cries out in the wilderness. Get ready, the Lord's coming. What a beautiful confession to be made. And in it, I see it a, a, a key to greatness. When a man or a woman knows who they are not, then simply they are ready to be what God made them to be. It's a stunning thing to encounter such a person. In 1977, the famous British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, the founder of the magazine Punch, uh, an atheist who became a Christian and became quite uh, a communicator of the faith, but a, a journalist, he was, he was uh, assigned by BBC to, to cover uh, Mother Teresa, who had just been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, 1977. He, he was on the verge of his own spiritual odyssey that brought him to Jesus Christ. And so he was kind of eager to take on the assignment and go to Calcutta to meet this extraordinary woman. And and so he was compelled not only to do the television broadcast documentary, but also then to write a book. And his reflections are in that book entitled Something Beautiful for God. I love what he's written. His first sentence in that book, he says, I should explain in the first place that Mother Teresa requested that nothing in the nature of a biography or biographical study should be attempted about me. Why? 
Muggridge explains. It is true that the wholly dedicated, like Mother Teresa, do not have biographies. Biographically speaking, nothing happens to them. To live for and in others as she does is essentially to eliminate happenings, which are a factor of the ego and of the will. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, is one of her favorite sayings. I once put a few desultory questions to her about herself, and she responded with one of her characteristic smiles, at once quizzical and enchanting, a kind of half-smile that she summons up whenever something specifically human is at issue. Her home had been an exceptionally happy one, she said. And so when her vocation came to her, the only impediment was precisely this loving, happy home, which she did not wish to leave. But of course, her calling and vocation won and forever, and she gave herself to Christ and through him to her neighbor. This is the money, money quote. This was the end of her biography and the beginning of her life. In abolishing herself, she found herself by virtue of that unique Christian transformation manifested in the crucifixion and the resurrection, whereby we die in order to live. There is much talk today, Muggeridge continues, about discovering an identity as though it was something to be looked for, like winning a number in the lottery, and that once found it is to be hoarded or treasured. Actually, on some sort of Keynesian principle, the more it is spent, the richer it becomes. So with Mother Teresa, in effacing herself, she became herself. I have never met anyone more memorable, he says. Once I had an occasion to see her off at the Calcutta railway station. And when the train began to move, I walked away. I felt as though I was leaving behind me all the beauty and all the joy of the universe. Something of God's universal love had rubbed off on her, giving her homely features a noticeable luminosity. She had lived so closely with her Lord that the same enchantment clings about her that sent the crowds chasing after Jesus in Jerusalem and Galilee and made his mere presence seem a harbinger of healing. Making way... For the Lord who comes. That's greatness. And when a man or woman knows what they, who they are not, they can, with utter simplicity, get on with the business of being who they are as God meant them to be. And there is a tremendous radiance that surrounds such an authentic person. There's a tremendous beauty that belongs to you when you you come to peace with the person that God made of you. And then with that, there also comes a tremendous authority. Back to John chapter 1, verse uh, 24. The Pharisees then are are confused. Well, if you are just a voice, if if you're not supported by titles and degrees, if you are not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not even a prophet... Why then do you do what you do? (laughs) Have you ever had someone question your answers like that? Your your actions like that? Why do you do what you're doing? One of my dearest friends is a senior executive in an internationally recognized firm. And (laughs) every week you can find him surrounded by a circle of fourth grade boys teaching Bible in a Sunday school. 
And, and, and even though he, 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 he walks the halls with power in, in Fortune 500, every summer he takes two weeks of personal vacation to work as a VBS helper. Sure, I've got a successful career, he told me one time, but this is where I come alive. This is what I live for. This is where God made me to live. And when I ask his coll- what his colleagues think, he just laughs at me. He says, oh, they think I'm crazy. They just don't get it. This is what God has made me to do. Not the Christ, not, not Elijah, not a prophet, but I'm real happy just being a voice. Just doing what God has called me to do. In verse 26, John's answer reveals the greatness of his soul. He says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Let me unpack that one a little bit. What John is saying here goes far beyond himself. It's as if he's saying this. I'll retranslate it. I am doing simply what God has asked me to do so that I can be in the right place at the right time to see the one who God has sent when he comes. Why? Because the one God sends could be standing right next to you and you wouldn't even know him. God sent his son to be your light and your life, but just like the darkness can't understand the light in John 1.5, you wouldn't recognize your light and life, your Savior, if I wasn't here to introduce him. Why do I do the things that I do? I do what I can do because without me, you couldn't do what you need to do. And what he is saying here is so utterly profound because given the quality of learning that these people, these these examiners possessed, what he's saying is incredibly cheeky because what he's saying to them, he says, with all of your learning, with all of your education, with all of your expectation, with all of your religion, the fact is the one who is God himself is standing next to you and you don't even know him. A man or woman with a greatness of soul awakens others and prepares the way for others to see Jesus and to recognize his presence. And we do that with that same degree of purpose as we walk in a dark world. That fog is down to a vision that is only one foot distant. You can blow that back and say, Jesus is right here. And one more thing. When Jesus arrived, John, with this great soul, prepared others to know what to do in that moment as he arrived. When they see the light. And when they see the life. And when they see Jesus. Look at verse 29. It says, The next day, I can imagine that with that ringing in their ears. Jesus is somewhere near around. The Messiah is somewhere near around. The next day, John saw Jesus and said, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
The, the people who had come from Jerusalem had a, had a view of God that were he to come, he would restore their fortunes, their rightful place in society and in the political order of the day. But when John sees the Son of God among them, he does not say, behold the conquering hero or behold the brilliant politician, but he says instead, behold the Lamb of God. And in one sentence, he reveals Jesus for who he was and even more what his intended mission was all about, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all of the imagery painted by the prophets, by Isaiah and all the rest, come in a critical mass with Jesus. He is the one, the only one, able to free you from your sin. And here he is. Years ago... my. My, my dear mentor, Gordon MacDonald, I, I heard him preach about John the Baptist by weaving this story, so forgive me for stealing from him. The story he lays out goes like this. Among John's disciples, among the disciples that were serving John and doing crowd control, there were several management types at the River Jordan. And as the crowds began to grow and they came to hear John preach, repentance, they decided that they would help John by getting things organized. So they set up tables and they they began to give out name tags to those who were coming for repentance. And, And so on the name tag, they would write down the person's name, but even more, they would write of which they needed to repent. You can imagine that. So Bob walks up to the table, and the organizers say, what's your name? My name's Bob. So they write his name on the name tag, Bob. And then they ask the question, what is your most awful sin, Bob? And Bob goes, well, (coughs) I stole some money from my boss. And so the disciple takes the marker and writes down in bold letters, embezzler, and then slaps it on his robe and says, step up to the plate. Next, the next person came forward. Your name? Mary. Mary, what's your most awful sin? Well, I gossip about some people. It's not very much, but I really didn't like these people, but I gossip. And, and, and so the organizers wrote down, Mary, slanderer, and slapped it on her chest and sent her forward to meet John. Next, a man comes up to the table. What's your name? George. George, what's your most awful sin? Well, I thought about how nice it would be to have my neighbor's Corvette, Camel. The name tag came out, George, coveter. Another man approached the table. What's your name? He was asked, Gordon, what's your sin? I've had an affair. The organizer wrote it down, Gordon, adulterer, and slapped the sticker on his chest. Soon, a solitary figure stepped out of the crowd. Coming past the table, and as he... As he came forward, he walked down the line of those who were waiting to meet John and to be baptized in repentance. And and he asked them for their sin tags. And one by one, he reached and he took the tags off those people. And he put them on his own body. And to the next, he took the tag and he put it on his body. And to the next, he took the tag and he put it on his body. Until by the time he came to the front, all of the tags were upon him. And then he went to John, and there he was baptized. And as he went into the river, the water washed away the ink 
from each name tag that he carried. And as he rose from the water, John turned to the shore and made the announcement, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Brothers and sisters, do you know who you are? Do you know what God meant you to be? Do you know what God means you to be about? It all comes down to Jesus. To Jesus. The truly great are those who have have set themselves aside and live then resurrected lives having been crucified with Jesus. We come to the end of the service and I suppose as a lead into prayer, there is that beautiful verse that moved my heart when I first came to know Christ and has become my anchor in each and every day with prayer. It's Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 and I'd I'd ask you to to make it your own statement of confession, knowing who you are. Who are you? You'll find it on the PowerPoint screen. You'll find it in your bulletin. You'll find it maybe even in your memory if you've memorized the verse, Galatians 2, chapter 20. I'd ask you to say it together with me. I have been crucified in Christ, and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me.